Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, much of the radical activist sector of black America is gearing up for an international tribunal in October that will indict the United States for its many crimes against humanity. The U.S. puppet states Uganda and Rwanda have caused the deaths of at least 6 million Congolese in recent decades, but Washington blames Congo's troubles on Islamic extremists. The problem with that rationale is very few Muslims live in the Congo. And we'll have a report on the systematic poisoning of a small black town in Florida. But first, the lopsided war between Palestinians and their Zionist occupiers has spread to Israel, where Arab citizens have taken to the streets. For an overview of the fighting in Israel and the occupied territories, we spoke with Sarah Flounders, a longtime activist with the International Action Center in New York City. Three of the tallest buildings in Gaza, these are apartment buildings, were absolutely leveled, just bombed. And these are also the cell towers and communication centers. And it's the media center. They're described as things in the media like Hamas strongholds. That's actually, they are the communication towers. So it has shut off internet and phone and all kinds of communication of Gaza, which is already limited but with the outside world. But we should also discuss the attacks of Israel within Israel itself, within the West Bank, and the attacks on the Al-Aska Mosque, which really gave rise to so much of this, and the expropriation and eviction of Palestinians on the, the very day that Palestinians are marking the Nakba, the expulsion in '48 comes new expulsions within East Jerusalem, within Jerusalem itself. So that policy never ends. And when there were protests on holiest days of, of Ramadan, the Israelis went in with both rubber bullets and stun grenades and gas in crowded areas. I mean, this is really in the holiest site. You can't get past some of these complete crimes it is creating really an uprising, even in the Palestinian communities within Israel itself. Yes, the uprising seems to be general in both the occupied territories and in Israel. We have been led to believe that the Palestinian resistance had hit a low point, uh, that there was a quietude and a loss of energy. Uh, but all that changed in recent weeks. It shows, and this was a provocation, a planned provocation by Israel. There was no need to do this, but to do this very expulsion at this time to feed the ultra-right Zionist forces in Israel with this march through Jerusalem, with this call for expropriation, means that there's never a quiet or a low point that any sign of the struggle, even backing down an inch, Israel will go out of its way to inflame. And that is really what happened. There's no other way of understanding this expulsion because they know they had the support both of the Trump administration, earlier of the Obama administration. And in the midst of this attack, at the very minute that apartment buildings in Gaza are just being leveled with bombs, 
Biden says, oh, Israel has a right to defend itself. So this is really open support for the attacks taking place. And as I say, there's all of the other support behind the scenes for this targeting. So it it really is, I, I can't say it any other way, what an urgent time this is for there to be a response and also to denounce the corporate media, which in every way equates again and again Israeli attacks and Palestinian righteous defense with these small rockets. Here's Israeli missiles able to destroy whole buildings, and the coverage in every way is things like Hamas is firing rockets into Israel, causing Israeli response, and the violence has just boiled over. In every way, the stories lead with Hamas rocket attacks as if this is out of the blue, and then Israel is just defending itself. The media completely, the corporate media, buys into this story, or at best it's describing uh, described as some kind of nebulous clashes. So it, it equates the two. But for the most part, all of the blame and the weight is on the Palestinian movement. As some have noted, the Israelis are urged to defend themselves against the people who have no army and who have no rights that the oppressor is bound to respect. That's exactly right. Now, I I also, though, just to, to give great respect to the Palestinian resistance, they've proven that they're not totally defenseless. And as Israel has found again and again, and they found again in the 50 day war, in 2014, they couldn't get one Israeli tank into Gaza, which for 50 years they had been able to just roll in, smashing everything in sight. And they were unable to get a foot inside Gaza because of the defense perimeters that had been built. Now, I don't know what new equipment they have since then, but that was a very important step. So we see the Palestinians defending themselves as best they can and also defending themselves within Jerusalem itself in mass mobilizations and alerting the whole world to what the expropriations mean. In the United States, we see a vigorous response to the Palestinian resistance. Over the weekend, more than 50 U.S. cities saw demonstrations in solidarity with the Palestinians. Probably far more than 50. There are, I think, really, it's it's safe to say, hundreds of actions going on this weekend. In a number of cities, there's two, three, five actions that are unfolding as people come out in all different ways. And we want to continue to mobilize because it's a really important time. All different political events are being transferred. We were working on a, just to give an example, a Nicaragua webinar to launch a a film on a delegation to Nicaragua. There was a, a collective decision to postpone that, to put all of the energy into Palestine at this moment. And this is notable because the Palestinian support efforts have largely been on the defensive because of all of the laws being passed in the United States, barring even discussion of BDS. 
That's true. Zionists in the U.S. and internationally have made every effort to shut down and silence any mention of their crimes. And they do it in, in specific legislation against the boycott, divest, sanction movement. And they allow no discussion of the U.S. sanctions that exist on the Palestinian movement, which are some of the harshest sanctions in the world. So talk about an inequality. There's no bigger example on this. Here is Gaza in such enormous need, complete destruction of buildings, but also electrification, sanitation, sewage. They can't get cement for rebuilding. They can't get medical supplies. Even getting vaccines is difficult, whereas overwhelmingly Israelis are vaccinated, but the Palestinians are not. All of this inequality is based in great part on U.S. sanctions on Palestinians. And we got to begin to address that also because it's intentionally left out of the discussion. And even as these actions are ongoing, international agencies continue their investigation of Israel for possible crimes against humanity. Yes, they, they, well, that's been going on for decades and is in a new stage now, whether that means anything, because clearly Israel is guilty. Will they? Can they be brought to justice? It's like U.S. war crimes. They're endless. They're denounced, but they're done with impunity. I think it's very important for Israel to be condemned in the eyes of the whole world. So the war crimes hearings and investigations are important, but we got to know that Israel has always been willing to be completely criminal and illegal in its conduct. And they often intentionally play that role. When, when the U.S. wants really dirty work done, they'll call on Israeli intelligence and Israeli forces because the reputation is known and they could care how much they're hated in the eyes of the world. Yes, Israel's actions, their provocation, as you put it, uh, is also a challenge to the Biden administration in its first months in office. It would seem it's a challenge. Now, as I say, Biden's response actually supporting Israel and supporting Israel's right to, quote, defend itself when clearly Israel is the aggressor. And the whole world sees that, shows how absolutely callous and supportive of Zionism from the first day until now, every U.S. administration has been. Regardless of what crimes Israel commits, they know they have the backing because they represent the interests of U.S. corporate power. Here in New York, in terms of the, the demonstrations on last Tuesday, on Saturday in Brooklyn, in Bay Ridge, on Sunday in Patterson, New Jersey, is just a response in the New York area, along with many other actions taking place across the country and around the world. So you've been a resistor for a very long time. Are you heartened by the resurgence or the confirmation that there's plenty of pro-Palestinian, anti-Zionist sentiment in the United States? What struck me in a very moving way, and this is after many decades um, my whole political life, Palestine has been a burning issue. Every generation was to suddenly see a whole new young generation of the Black Lives Matter movement come alive, be impassioned on this, make the immediate links 
between the role of racist killer cops here and IDF forces against the Palestinians. That connection, uh, older activists didn't even have to make. It was immediately grasped. Uh, and these demonstrations have been overwhelmingly the youth, the young activists, the young militants who've been in the streets already. That's important because it shows how clear the link is. You don't have to draw the pictures, connect the dots. It's immediately seen. And I found that a new, a new day. I've been in Palestine during past intifadas, during uprisings, where you could just see the, the scale of repression and lockdown, and yet people's ability still to connect with each other and to keep the resistance going. And I think that's exactly what you can see now, that during lockdown, everyone understands complete unity in the face of the Israeli aggressors. And how can people who have not yet hooked up with these actions in support of the Palestinians, how can they become involved? I think the first thing for them to do is to get themselves to an action or demonstration. And that's not hard to do. I, I think it, you, they'd be hard placed to find a demonstration anywhere in, the, in this country that isn't listed on the Sami Doon network. That's S-A-M-D-O-U-N dot net. It's also listed on the International Action Center site, iacenter.org. And it's listed on many, many other sites. So educate, absolutely crucial, but this doesn't take a lot of, of connecting and be out there in action, in resistance. Get other resolutions, demand, denounce what this administration is doing and demand support for the Palestinian people. And there's hundreds of ways that there can be resolutions and actions and we just need in so many levels to find the voice at this point to stop the evictions and to stop the attacks. The attacks are to cover further expropriations and further driving out of the Palestinians, and they are refusing to move. That was Sarah Flounders of the International Action Center speaking from New York City. In October, a commission of jurists from around the world will convene in the United States for an international tribunal on U.S. human rights abuses. The organizing campaign leading up to October is called In the Spirit of Mandela and was kicked off with a webinar featuring Jihad Abdul Mumit, a former Black Panther political prisoner and current co-chair of the Jericho Movement. This tribunal, sisters and brothers, I cannot uh, begin to emphasize the importance of it at this particular point in time in our struggle. Um, I'd like to, for those of us that have the information on the tribunal, if you do not have that information, that I would ask that you would uh, email immediately spiritofmandela1 at gmail.com or go to spiritofmandelawebsite.org, but email and so that you can be put on the, uh, the listserv and get up with the information. This process is, 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 is humongous. And first of all, the tribunal is in October and all the time leading up into this, you know, we're attempting to do mass organizing, which is what it's all about. When we say all power to the people, we're talking about breaking out of the silos of our organizational spheres. And I'm speaking candidly and really try to build a movement, 
leading up into the tribunal. The tribunal itself, the tribunal itself is just a point in time where we bring together the the, the effects and, and the accomplishments of our organizing at that point, establish what the issues are to the public. Who are the who are the juries in this particular tribunal? Even though we have 13 jurists to oversee the tribunal, but who are we really trying to reach? We're trying to reach the American people. This tribunal is an educational process that is profound. It is an organizing, the sister and Kichi talks about, it's a tribunal of action. It's not just to have an event and then that's it. We're so tired and exasperated and exhausted that we go home and wait for the next event. But if when you get the information about the tribunal, which I'm going to go over very, very briefly, you know, it's the outcomes. Where we where are we going with this? Now, the core of this is the freedom of all political prisoners. But you will notice that we're talking about we're talking about uh, addressing and charging United States civilly, federally, and and violation of international law. You know, for the, the, the assassination and killings of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people the hyper-incarceration of black and brown and indigenous people. And we know that that deals with the, with the whole 13th Amendment and enslavement of our people in these prisons and these dungeons and these concentration camps. It deals with addressing the campaigns for freedom of all political prisoners and freedom fighters who fought against all these issues that we're just talking about, that they're in jail for and sacrificed for. We're talking about charging the United States for environmental racism, which impacts Black, brown, indigenous people the most. We're talking about charging the United States government for is, is the disparities in racism and public health, which all the trauma from 400 uh, years of slavery all the way up until now. Slavery continued up until, up until now. So that's why we have all these issues. And then the underlining, as Kishi presented, was the, the charge of genocide. And that is exactly what it is. Like with many other uh, trials, we see that, you know, when we get behind the scenes, sisters and brothers, it becomes very detailed. And the lawyers behind us and the lawyers behind in Kichi know that you know, we're going to present all these issues. We're going to present impacted and expert witnesses to flush out these issues. These issues will be codified and published. The results of this tribunal will be uh, codified and published so it can be presented in college and school curriculums. It's going to provide a base, uh, organizing base and launch path for us to, to reach out into mainstream society. Yes, mainstream society. We are ineffective if we keep on talking to ourselves. If we keep talking to ourselves, the revolutionaries, the militants, then your next door neighbor is not on that page. I can guarantee you that. The store clerk is not on that page. I can guarantee you that. How do we reach these sisters and brothers? All across the United States, from Iowa to Idaho to Arizona to Colorado to Oregon to wherever they are. So this tribunal attempts to reach out to form that national base because the results of this tribunal, sisters and brothers, you know we're going to find them. We're going to nail them to the wall. They've already been nailed to the wall with the evidence, but we're going to bring it together in such a venue that the world can see all right. And then after that, it is the call to action because we would have organized so many hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm talking big numbers. And if you're not used to talking to these big numbers, then maybe you need to sit back and, and reevaluate your whole efforts in this whole thing called uh, the movement for freedom and justice and equality and self and, and independence and self-determination. We're not talking about a few people. We're talking about a place called the United States of America. And how can we, after all the decades that we have dedicated our lives to and fighting for freedom, some of us going to prison for that and, and some of us still in prison for that. 
How do we now take it to another level? How do we take our revolutionary acumen, our intelligence, our skills, our talents, and be able to organize a people in a place called the United States of America? How do we rearticulate what we're saying so we can reach the people? How can we reach your neighbor across the street who is not present in any of your venues? This is what this tribunal gives us the opportunity to do mass organizations so when we have the tribunal everything is on spotlight and then after it boom we're ready to launch we're ready to launch initiatives as powerful and profound as a people's senate a people's senate across the united states representing all poor and oppressed people coming out of our silos how do i dare you to struggle i dare you to struggle for that i dare you to struggle beyond that so now we have these intense initiatives behind all the political prisons. Mumia this week, and I'll be in Philly myself, inshallah, and Maroon Schultz and all the prisoners. We have to be focused on them. But next year, where will we be? We have to have short-term and long-term vision, sisters and brothers, so that we can change the climate, so that we can change the climate. So that's not just the matter of getting political prisoners out of jail, which is fundamentally important and imperative in any liberation movement, but we also have to seize the time to get to our communities and change that fabric around. In this tribunal, the organizing leading up into it, and I'll close on this, gives us that opportunity. And we're building, as Nkichi and, 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 and Sister Dekui just said, we're building on the shoulders of giants. We're recognizing everything that's come before us. And we're bringing it front and center with a massive organization and a stellar presentation. This is not going to be a tribunal of speeches, of celebrity activists, none of that. We're having lawyers that we're going to have impacted witnesses. We're going to have expert witnesses. We're going to prove the case to the American people, to the apolitical people, to the liberals, to all of these people that we talk about uh, that are in our communities, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, they're not revolutionary like us. This gives us the opportunity. So I challenge everybody, I, including myself, to become a part of this, program, this process. Everybody on this call, all 99 people that's on this call and who may listen to it later, have the opportunity to become present in this process to offer your suggestions to this process. This is not a process of a few people. Colossus, done deal, is over with. Social media event, next. Not that. This is boots on the ground, sisters and brothers, and we're inviting you to this process. All power to the people, all power to the October 2021 International Tribunal. We pray to Allah's guidance and blessings upon each and every one of us. I pray for your families. I pray for all of us that's suffering in the hands of police violence and from the from the devastation of the COVID-19 and, and, and everything else that's been traumatizing <clears throat> us the last 400 years. I salute you as I came. Assalamu alaikum. That was Jihad Abdul Mumit of the Jericho Movement to Free All Political Prisoners. The United States is trying to blame the ongoing slaughter in the Democratic Republic of Congo on Islamic fundamentalist jihadists despite the fact that hardly any Muslims live in that country. Kambale Musavuli spent years organizing in the United States. He's now back in his native Congo and working as an analyst for the Illinois-based Center for Research on Congo Kinshasa. Musavuli says it's not Muslims, but the U.S.-backed governments of Rwanda and Uganda that are to blame for the deaths of six million Congolese. The Congolese government, the Congolese president, is pushing the narrative 
that we have Islamic terrorists in DRC. We have ISIS in DRC. A few months ago, the United States State Department put out an official statement uh, designating a rebel group in the Congo connected to Uganda called the ADF, Allied Democratic Forces, that the ADF is a foreign terrorist group and that they are connected to ISIS. This has been debunked by many organizations, be it on the ground and internationally. And I will quote the UN group of experts. Now, in the last two reports, in, the, in December of 2020 and the one in June of 2020, also last year, they clearly stated that there is no link with rebel groups in the DRC with ISIS, that this is all fabricated. So it's quite interesting to see that the U.S. will go against the experts on the issue who worked on DRC for the past two decades and say that they have evidence that this rebel group in DRC has that. But what does that do? Right? This precipitates U.S. presence in the Congo. Uh, already before the announcement, for the past two years, a few military agreements have been signed between the Congolese government and AFRICOM. And in January of this year, one of the most bizarre things happened. We had one thing first, is the Chinese foreign minister visited the DRC in January, uh, the first week of January. Uh, as he came during COVID, provided support to the Congolese government, saying that they're going to forgive some loan, about $58 million worth, and spoke about development. Two weeks after the visit, Kinshasa, the capital city of the Congo, saw itself invaded by American generals. So you had American generals and different high-level military officials of the U.S. military connected to Africa flying into Kinshasa, doing things that they will never do even in the United States. The AFRICOM met with Congolese civil society. AFRICOM met with some of Congolese youth groups. AFRICOM had high-level meeting with the Congolese government, signing agreement for the U.S. military to come into DRC to go after what the State Department calls ISIS DRC. So this already brings us to a situation where we are worried about increased military presence in the ERC, particularly from the, the United States. But that's not the only military force now coming to the DRC. A week before the martial law was declared, the Kenyan president, Uru Kenyatta, was in the capital city of Kinshasa. He also signed agreements with the DRC, and one of the agreements is a military agreement to bring Kenyan troops. Beyond that, as we speak right now, in the city of Beni, in the eastern part of Congo, in the province that is under martial law, the Ugandan military has already set up camps. And last, Idris of uh, Chad, no, just passed away. There was a funeral in Chad. The president of the DRC and the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, were the only two presidents who actually attended the funeral. Right after the funeral, the Congolese president, Félix Tshisekedi, flew into Paris in Champs-Élysées, met with the French president, and they also signed agreement. So 2021 
for the Congo appears to be a military invasion by foreign militaries using a rebel group in the DRC with a bogus connection to ISIS as a pretext to have the military presence. You know, it really is telling that the United States, in response to economic competition in Africa from China, has no alternative but to bring in more military weight to send generals to Kinshasa when the Chinese are sending aid and development money to Africa. And it's becoming very obvious that this is the U.S. strategy. Wherever you see China, you will see the United States flexing its so-called military power to counter China on the African continent. We are clear about that. And it's been very interesting to watch over the years uh, the United States becoming the so-called moral authority on human rights abuse and exploitation on the African continent that quickly where they can say, well, China is colonizing Africa. I think that's an insult when we compare the actions of the Chinese government on the African continent to colonialism. What China is doing on the African continent is not colonialism, right? If we say that we are insulting those who fought for independence, Patrice Lumumba, the Kwame Nkrumah, the Julius Nere, all those Africans who fought to liberate the African continent were not living in the conditions that we are seeing right now. So it's important for Africans to understand why the U.S. military is here. The United States military is decreasing its presence in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and bringing now the American soldiers on the African continent to control Africa's resources, mainly strategic minerals such as cobalt and lithium, and also oil, where now Africa has surpassed the Middle East in providing the United States with oil. Now, Joe Biden and the Democrats say it's a brand new day, a totally different day than under Donald Trump. But in Africa, in U.S. foreign policy, uh, the day hasn't changed at all, has it? The United States is a very interesting, complex country, but very simple to understand. Foreign policy in the United States, as it relates to Democrats and Republicans, is always the same on the African continent. For some strange reasons, though, that I can say that under Donald Trump, we did not have increased military presence as we are seeing now being ramped up by Joe Biden. But we know when it comes to both parties and when it comes to exploiting the African continent, uh, they have the same tactics. But for the DRC, it's important for people to know why the DRC. Congo is the country is right in the heart of Africa, bordered by nine African countries. It has so much wealth, strategic minerals, uh, stocks that the people even say that the Congo is a geological scandal because of how much wealth he has, where it's estimated in trillions of dollars. But wh- why the Congo? Mao said, whoever controls the Congo controls the world. There is a fight right now between the dragon and the eagle. And the eagle believes that he can win this battle. So what the eagle is doing, being the United States, is coming on the African continent and making sure that it controls the minerals that is essential to its military. Not because I say it, 
are because of a document called Cobalt Policy. The Congressional Budget Office wrote a report in 1982 called the Cobalt Policy, where they themselves say that Congo's cobalt is essential to the military of the United States first and to the economy of the United States. And the disruption to the flow of Congo's cobalt will cause a political and economic crisis in the United States. So they know that. And Congo is the number one producer of cobalt in the world and has the largest cobalt reserve. So they want to control that wealth. But we in the Congo are clear of that. We don't wake up in the morning and saying that we want to go ahead and exploit minerals. We are fighting for our lives. We are fighting for our liberation. That since 1960, Congolese have been fighting to control and determine their affairs, where when they were successful in electing the first democratically elected prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, Within a few months, he was deposed and then later assassinated by the CIA. But the Congolese have not stopped that fight. As we've gone through two decades of war, these past two decades, over 6 million Congolese have died. We continue to resist. We know that they are calling for ISIS in DRC. We understand that the reason why they are calling is so that they can have military presence. They will continue to displace population and call maiming the population. But we are going to continue to resist educating, mobilizing, and organizing the Congolese people so that they can control their affairs, so that they can push the ideas of Patrice Lumumba, who wanted Congo's resources to benefit the Congolese people. That's the fight we are waging at the moment. You note that Kenya is now preparing to assume a military role inside Congo, which means an expansion of the U.S. proxy surrogate nations in that continent. Kenya, for example, has acted as a surrogate for the United States in Somalia and now will expand that role in Congo. And you also note that France and the United States are collaborating even more closely, which has occurred in line with more cooperation between those two imperial powers in the Sahel region of the continent, where they claim to be fighting against Islamic fundamentalists, which may have something to do with why they're saying that Islamic fundamentalists are now in Congo, because that's the song they've been singing elsewhere between France and the United States and their militaries in terms of cooperation. Kenya, beyond even its military power, they've also been flexing the economic power, specifically through banking, you know, equity bank connected directly to the family of the president, Uru Kenyatta, is going all across the African continent, and particularly not even now in DRC, buying up assets. You know, they control the commercial bank in DRC. They actually purchase a Kenyan bank called Equity Bank, purchase the commercial bank, estates bank in the DRC. Right? It's owned now by them. But what is actually happening in the region? I mean, where these two places that we are discussing, where that they are speaking about Islamic terrorists in DRC. You know, the most important thing that's happening there is what? There is a lake. The lake is called Lake Albert. Lake Albert, in the mid 2000s had a huge discovery, right? These engineers, uh, surveyors, discovered that Lake Albert has 
2.5 billion barrels of oil. Lake Albert is at the border of Congo and Uganda. There is a huge project to get the oil from the lake, and they have been building this over the years. On the Ugandan side of the lake, there is oil. But what we know from the information that's now available is that the oil in that lake, the 2.5 billion barrels of oil in that lake, the vast majority of it is found in DRC. It's underground all the way inside of the Virunga Park, all the way, surprisingly, in the city of Beni, where the massacres have been taking place for the past decade, where the so-called ADF rebel group connected to ISIS is operating, and that you start looking at the DRC and that region, it start looking almost as Mozambique. And then you start connecting it to also what happened in the Middle East, in Iraq, in uh, other places around the world. So we know that the oil in the lake is a strategic resource that is causing commotion there. But then who controls this oil? The oil in the lake has many of the blocks already sold to multinationals. The one who used to control it was Tulo Oil. But as we speak today, Total, the French oil company, has purchased all the assets of Tulo Oil on the African continent. And Total is actually controlling most of the oil licenses in that lake. So it's not by accident that France is now also engaged in DRC. So while we may talk about military power, but they are there to make sure that the oil reserves of the Lake Albert stays in the control. No matter what is happening in DRC, there is a president called Felix Shisekedi who came into power in a rigged election. The entire world is watching as if the voice of the Congolese does not count. And then one has the, the world to believe that the Congolese are beyond this president who's cutting deals day and night with the World Bank, with the mining companies, with foreign governments such as the United States and France at the moment. And that's why it's important to really, to understand what is the strategic interest. We have 2.5 billion barrels of oil in one lake, and we haven't even talked about the oil in different places in the DRC. And at this point, I think it's important to remind our listeners that since 1996, at least 6 million Congolese have died in these wars of invasion by its neighbors, backed by the United States. Yes, and uh, this war that started in '96 was also uh, revolving around control of mineral resources. A mineral resource that was exploded at the time is coltan a mineral that's found in virtually every electronic device, the cell phone, the laptops, uh, TVs, and so on. And that from this war, we have had so many documentation of the conflict, and the perpetrator of the violence and the killing have never been held accountable. In 2010, a decade ago, the United Nations and its Geneva office, the UN Human Rights Office, in Geneva, published a report. That report was called the UN Mapping Exercise Report. This report documented the most serious violation of human rights and international humanitarian law from 1993 to 2003 in DRC. This report says that what's happening in the Congo 
is war crime, crime against humanity, and possible genocide if proven in a competent court. And the question of genocide in the DRC, this report implicated the Rwandan military, the military that the United States used as the proxy, where you can go to Haiti and find Rwandan soldiers. And you wonder, why are Rwandan soldiers in Haiti? You go to Mali at one point, you had Rwandan soldiers there. Central African Republic, you had Rwandan soldiers there. So wherever U.S. interest is at stake, the United States used their, uh, its allies, Rwanda and Uganda. You know, Ugandan soldiers have been in Iraq and have been in Afghanistan as well. They used them to do their dirty bidding on the African continent around the world while remaining silent for the crimes they committed in the DRC. And Uganda is also a surrogate for the United States in Africa, and especially in Congo. And the World Court charged that Uganda was guilty of what may have been genocidal acts in Congo and assessed them billions of dollars, but Uganda's refused to pay. And that's what the point I was about to make. That beyond this case of the UN mapping exercise report, the Congolese people took the, uh, the Ugandan government to court at the International Court of Justice. And this court validated what the Congolese people know and ordered Uganda to pay $10 billion for the crimes they committed in the DRC. Economic crimes and human rights crimes. They committed serious war crimes, raping and killing Congolese people. Yet, till today, we have not received the dime. What we have received, as I said earlier, is the Ugandan military in one of the towns in the DRC during martial law, and there is no outcry. So that's why it's important to continue to expose the contradictions, because these contradictions have connections. And as we share with Congolese people, if they can bomb Gaza, they can kill Palestinian people, this is also what justifies why well, there is impunity in the DRC, because we see how they operate. They are silent on the Congo. Of course, they're going to be silent on uh, Palestine. So this is the reason why, in the challenge in, of the DRC, we must connect with the ordinary people of the world, the oppressed of the world, so that the people in West Africa who are facing uh, French military who are seeing the uranium exploited, can be connected to the struggle of the Congolese, that the South Africans who are also struggling to control their land can be connected to the Congolese, to our brothers and sisters in Palestine. They can be connected to the Congolese, that we, we learn from one another how do they operate, and we expose the exploitation that is happening. And we believe by creating this form of unity, it will actually make it difficult for people around the world to say they don't know that 6 million Congolese have died since 1996 in the conflict. That they don't know that in the built Clinton administration in the 90s, they remained silent when they saw their allies running Uganda invading the Congo and making all these crimes. So while Rwanda and Uganda may be guilty, 
the United States has no moral authority in any corner of this planet to lecture the world around human rights and justice because they've been so unjust in the DRC in the 90s all the way to the so-called Berlin Conference of 1885 when the United States became the first country in the world to recognize the Congo as a personal property of King Leopold while tens of millions of Congolese died under King uh, Leopold's rule, extracting rubber that was used for cars. And now we are right back where something happened 100 years ago is also happening again, where 6 million Congolese people are dying so that they could get control of the wealth that we have in the DRC. That was Kambale Musavuli of the Center for Research on Congo, Kinshasa. The mostly black town of Talavast, Florida, was a poor but hardworking community where most of the families owned their homes and found ways to educate their children. But the water, land, and people of Talavast were poisoned by industrial polluters, including some of the biggest names in the military-industrial complex. James Manigault Bryant is a descendant of one of Talavast's founding families. Dr. Manigault Bryant is now a professor of Africana Studies at Williams College. He wrote a recent article for the Boston Review titled, Poisoning Talavast. The American Beryllium Company is built in Talavast. It's established in 1961. ABC, American Beryllium Company, also called ABC, ended up being about five separate buildings on a plot of land. And between 1961 and 1996, ABC was a machining company, and what it would do, it would take beryllium, raw beryllium that is mined in particular parts of the world, a lot of it is mined in Utah, and it was shipped into Talavas and then machined into a form that could be used for the defense industry and for NASA. Beryllium, according to records, the beryllium that was machined at ABC, a significant percentage of it went to the defense industry for weapons and for, for satellites. Well, beryllium, however, when it is improperly exposed to human beings, is a kind of weapon itself. That's absolutely right. So the machining of beryllium, it generates a dust. And during the machining process, the dust would fly through the air. A lot of it would remain on premises, but a good bit of it went out into the community. Those who had direct contact with the dust were the, the custodians of ABC, many of whom were Talavas residents. And so the dust was then placed into bags, and then those bags were taken to drums, and then the drums were then shipped off-site. But the custodial staff who had that direct contact with the beryllium, it subjected them to health hazards. And so the disease that contracts from exposure to beryllium dust is called beryllosis. And beryllosis attacks the lungs. There was one family in Talavast where each member of the household, there were three members of the household each, contracted beryllosis. But the machining process also entailed cleaning the tools, the instruments that were used for the beryllium and solvents were used for that cleaning process. One of the chemicals in the solvents is TCE. And so during the cleaning process, 
the solvents were then placed into on-site drums. And what happened is that over the course of the 35 years of the machining process, those drums weren't monitored very closely by ABC staff or by the Department of Environmental Protection or by local environmental protection agencies. And the drums essentially uh, leaked and the solvents went into the groundwater of the community. What made it particularly dangerous for the community is that many homes in Talavas were on wells. They were not connected to the county water supply at the time. And so the solvents went into the groundwater. And so drinking well water, which makes groundwater the source of drinking water household use, the groundwater with the beryllium essentially seeped into the wells. So residents were consuming contaminated water for God knows how long. From estimates that our geoscientist, Jose Constantine, who was a co-writer of the article, Poisoning Calabas, as well as one of our students, Ruby Bagwin, that Jose determined that the plume that ended up around Talavas from the contaminated groundwater had been in process during the entire time that, that ABC was, was in existence. So it actually, by the time they measured the size of the plume, by the time that was measured in 2000, at that point it was about 200 acres. And for the plume to have reached that size, it meant that the, the solvents had been leaking into the groundwater since the early 60s. Yes, in fact, and studies have shown that the Televast residents were suffering cancer at 85% higher rates than the cancers that occurred with other African-Americans in Florida. And of course, African-Americans suffer higher rates of cancer than whites. FOCUS, as the community organization in Talabast, FOCUS stands for Family Oriented Community United Strong. And FOCUS commissioned a health study by a Dr. Gasana, who at that time was at Florida International University, I believe. And Dr. Gasana assembled a team of faculty and graduate students to conduct an extensive health study in Talavas. And essentially what they found is, as you just stated, uh, Mr. Ford, that rate of cancers in Talavas were 85% greater than for other black communities in the state of Florida. Now, this is a long process, not just the process of contaminating the land and sickening the people, but another frustrating process of getting government intervention to somehow prevent the worst from happening. Yes, that's right. In our research, we discovered that the Florida Department of Environmental Protection had been monitoring the activities of ABC throughout its existence over the course of the 35 or so years that ABC was machining beryllium. But the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, FDEP, did not note or observe or document the leaks in the on-site storage tanks of the solvents with TCE. And so it's hard to know whether they saw the leaks and just didn't do anything about it, or they saw the leaks and didn't think that they were as dangerous as they were, or 
it's not clear what they saw. It's just that whatever reviews that they conducted did not document what was transpiring. And ABC staff also did not report that there were any issues. Well, what is clear is that Televast has been subjected to high degrees of racial discrimination before ABC came in, before the name of this exotic chemical was known to the people of Televast, and that the neglect after it became clear that something very wrong was happening is just a continuation of that kind of neglect and not a benign neglect at that. That's absolutely right. And what makes Talavas a special place and what was important to Talavas and what's important about Talavas is that many residents own their own land, they own their own homes. And that with their home ownership, that, that did not entitle them to the protections against environmental pollution that other homeowners throughout you know, the county or the state would receive. And so that of protection, that lack of consideration for you know, the impact of having hazardous metals you know, machined right in the center of the, the community, you know, their lives and land just weren't considered. Even though the dangers of beryllium have been known since the 1940s, there was a, a town in Ohio, for example, where the uh, machining of, of beryllium in this small town in Ohio was shown to threaten the health of homeowners around the facility. And so even with that knowledge, as far back as the 40s, that was not taken into consideration when ABC was built in Talabast. Where does the situation stand today for the residents of Talabast? <clears throat> well, the situation right now is that Lockheed Martin, which is the company that assumed responsibility for, uh, for cleaning up ABC's mess, Lockheed Martin purchased Laurel Corporation. Laurel Corporation was sort of the parent corporation for ABC. Uh, Lockheed purchased Laurel Corporation in, in uh, 1996, 1997, right after ABC closed. And so Lockheed's intention was to conduct an environmental audit to prepare the facility for sale. And when they had an outside, a private a consulting firm run an environmental audit. That's when the leaks in the onside tanks were supposedly, you know, discovered, quote unquote. So Lockheed assumed responsibility for the cleanup. They, after a number of court cases, sort of challenging their cleanup plan from Focus. Focus was, was challenging both Lockheed and FDEP's approval of Lockheed's plan. The agreement was that Lockheed would be given five years to start the cleanup process, and then there would be a sort of a check-in to see how successful the remediation process you know, would be at that time. We're now going on the seventh year, I believe, of the remediation process. And what's meant by remediation is that there was a supposed state-of-the-art uh, water treatment facility that was built on the same site where ABC used to be. And the water treatment facility essentially sucks up the groundwater and is treated and cleaned within the facility and then 
pumps back in, into the community. And then the wastewater is then dumped into surrounding uh, wetlands. So we're going, as I, as I said, we're going on that seventh year. And so that process is happening. It is not clear that the remediation process is successful at this point. There are signs pointing to it not being as successful as Lockheed claims that it might be. There's also the question of the effects of the remediation process on the landscape itself. There are a number of soil indentations throughout the community because of the aggressive nature of the remediation. So as I mentioned, the groundwater is being sucked out of the soil. And so now there are depressions throughout the soil, throughout the community, and it's compromising the foundations of homes. There's also the question of whether the remediation process, whether and how that is tied to potential degassing of TCE in the air. And so these are matters that are now being assessed and the community remains steadfast in its fight and in its desire to resolve this as best as possible to its satisfaction, although a resolution at this point, it's very hard to imagine for current residents that the way that Lockheed has handled the remediation, the ways that the state of Florida, its agencies have handled the damage that has been done to Talavas has been, in my opinion, and quite likely in the opinion of many Talavas residents, completely inadequate. And so that's where things stand at the moment. Well, big corporations are doing a great deal of damage all over the country with their work in chemicals. And especially, though, in the Deep South, where there are high concentrations of very black populations and poor populations that are not getting protection from the state at all. That's absolutely right. There's so much research, there's so much data and writings that speak to this phenomenon, certainly in the Southeast, but throughout the United States. The ways that industries, industrial facilities, the way that waste treatment plants are disproportionately located near communities of color in poor communities and leaves those communities damaged. And Talabas is one of many instances of this. What makes the Talabas case, I think, distinct is the clear connection or relationship between its contamination and the military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. 